Welcome to BIB Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. The federal cabinet shuffle Tuesday to start the third Justin Trudeau term moved many ministers around in significant portfolios, health, environment, foreign affairs, defense among them. Many saw these moves and of the non-moves involving many of the key financial portfolios as evidence of a swing perhaps to the left by this federal government. As our national debt piles up, due to pandemic spending and the government's own uh, longer range policy plans, I thought I'd be wise to uh, get an understanding of this, get a bit of a status report on what the business community in the country feels about it with Perrin Beattie. He's the CEO and the president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. He joins me now from Ottawa. Good to see you again. Great to see you, Kirk. Uh, what What were some of the signals that you derived from the way the shuffle went? Well, I think it does indicate that the first of all, there's a planning framework here of 18 to 24 months. Any political party that forces a new election during that time will pay a very high price. So uh, I expect the government is going to be very active in the next two years. Secondly, the agenda that they're setting out based on the signals sent in the in the cabinet shuffle is that it will likely be focused very much on environmental and social policy as opposed to many of the uh, traditional concerns the business community has had. When you say that, when you say that, does that mean that the government is is making a choice that it, it, it can't satisfy both? I think it's a question of priority that, that they're setting. I think if I've done a presentation to my own board uh, on some of the differences between the previous parliament and this one, and that superficially, Kirk, when you look at them, the numbers seem the same as they were back in July or August. But in fact, under the surface, there have been enormous changes. Uh, the first is the stability. We won't see another election for another 18 to, to 24 months minimum. Mm-hmm. Two, um, there's a change in terms of the distribution where uh, the Liberal caucus has become much more urbanized and most of its members come from uh, Vancouver, the greater Toronto area, uh, Montreal, from the, the large cities. The Conservative vote moved much more into the more rural areas and that, that's where they're represented in the House of Commons. Um, third, I, I think that you'll find that, that uh, it's more regionally, Parliament itself is more regionally balanced than it was uh, you have a liberal from Alberta now, which you didn't have before. You have more conservatives from Atlantic Canada and so on. But then when you take a look at the uh, at, at the cabinet, what you see is that, that uh, the big winners in the cabinet shuffle were the greater Toronto area mm-hmm. and uh, Quebec. Uh, there are four ministers from BC. Uh, from the prairies, now only two. Yeah. One from uh, Alberta, one from from uh, Manitoba, and the position as an emissary to Western Canada that Jim Carr had previously has been abolished. So there are a lot of changes taking place below the surface here. The, the other key thing is that for the last year and a half, the federal agenda has been set by COVID, and the government has had a focus on on how could it manage the pandemic, how could it deal with the economic impact of it. And it had to set aside its other agenda to a very great extent. We're now moving into a new phase where COVID's still with us, but it's starting to recede into the rearview mirror. And it means that other priorities are coming to the fore. And those priorities for this government tend to be 
climate change, indig indigenous reconciliation, childcare, social policy issues more broadly. Is it, is it now a, a losing battle to complain about the deficit and debt? That's, it's a major concern. If you look at where we are today, I don't think any of us could have anticipated 24 months ago that we would see the national debt rise the way that it did and that you would find groups like business groups calling upon the government to do uh, the size of spending that it was doing in terms of providing supports. The government had to, had to intervene. We made it, we are making it through the, uh, through the past the recession, through the pandemic. Uh, but we're waking up with a major headache. Uh, the government's projections show that by the time of the next election, Canada will have a $1.4 trillion national debt. This is a figure that none yeah. of us can get our minds around. Uh, no. the, you know, it's simply staggering. And the question is, how do we manage that debt? There's been a, a sort of blithe assumption that because interest rates have been low, and carrying costs then on, on borrowed money are low, that this is going to continue forever. It's not. And we even had a signal this week from the Bank of Canada that interest rates are likely to start going up sooner as opposed to later. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think nobody really counted upon was uh, a constant inflationary pressure that we appear to have now. Everybody said it was going to be quite transitory. Transitory for inflation feels like transitory for the pandemic now. It's going to be years and years and years. What, what impact are businesses worried about? Well, they're certainly worried about inflation itself. Uh, the supply chain problems that you folks in Vancouver are very much aware of uh, is an example of that. And, and when you talk to retailers, the difficulty they have even stocking their, their shelves between now and Christmas, uh, quite apart from dramatic increases in prices, uh, this is going to have a significant impact on the economy and on the ability of, of Canadians to manage. But beyond that, when you look at the national debt, obviously any increase in interest rates drives up the carrying charges on the national debt and the national debt is hitting record levels now. This means then that the very first bill that you pay, it's the same way on your own house, the first bill you pay is for the mortgage. Mm -hmm. And the national, you know, the national debt, the, the carrying charges in the national debt go first before you pay for old age pensions or for defense or for infrastructure or health care or any other issue. And uh, this is a, a major concern for us. So what we need desperately at this point is a strategy that, that first of all, moves us away from uh, the pandemic approach of, of shutdown, lockdown and subsidize to where both business and families are able to become self-sustaining again. And uh, a strategy that's focused on growth. You can't cut your way out of a $1.4 trillion debt. You don't want to inflate your way out of it because you damage everyone's savings in the, in the process. Uh, it's irresponsible to simply send the bill to our kids. The only responsible, uh, acceptable way of dealing with this is to promote growth. And it'll have to be growth at a level that we didn't know before the pandemic struck. Um, Canada's competitive performance was, was poor prior to the pandemic. Our growth rate relative to our competitors was poor. And the challenge for us now is to come up with, with a strategy we didn't have then for uh, much greater growth and much more sustained growth than we've known in the last 20 years. Well, 
What it sounds like, though, in the early days following this is that um, clearly the, the Trudeau government is going to make uh, good on a lot of its very expensive commitments around climate change. It has, of course, a childcare commitment that's going to be pretty formidable. Um, there are obvious health costs that will continue to increase, and so transfers will be required in order to accommodate that. But what else do you think this minority government might pile in place that the previous one didn't? Well, there are other pressures on the government as well. Because it's a minority, it has to seek support in the House. Yeah. Uh, that support is unlikely to come from the Conservatives, and that means then the pressure is to move further left. So you could hear position of the NDP or from some others that we should be having a national pharmacare program, mm -hmm. which could be exceptionally uh, costly. But other spending that that isn't budgeted today that that uh, we simply don't have the resources for. Uh, logic would have said that if something was unaffordable prior to the pandemic, it would definitely be unaffordable $1.4 trillion later. But uh, but it appears as if as if the prevailing psyche in Ottawa is that uh, somehow you can write a check, somebody else will pay some other time in some other way, and you won't uh, it, it won't cost you now. Unquestionably, business benefited from some of the subsidies during this, and and as a result, I think business was relatively quiet in terms of its concerns about everything from tax competitiveness. To, uh, to the absence of a very clear growth strategy. Can we expect now that business is gonna get a little grumpier and, and get on with that? I, I don't know about grumpier, but, but certainly we need to be assertive in terms of the need to, to put the economy first and to focus on, on growth. And there's a debate taking place here in Ottawa uh, between those who believe that, that you know, the government had to move into the bedroom upstairs during the during the recession. Some argue that it should take over the whole house now. Mm. Now the business community has a very different approach, and that's that one of the things we learned from from uh, management of the pandemic is that the business community is much more supple and fast acting than government is. When you take a look at the number of businesses in Canada which had to redefine their structure and their business plans overnight just to survive. When you look at how uh, Canadian businesses retooled to provide PPEs and, and other equipment that government was looking for, it really demonstrates uh, the capacity of business to be dynamic and, and entrepreneurial, much more so than, than government. If we are going to achieve the level of growth that we need to have to be able to finance this debt and to finance the costs of, uh, of dealing with climate change or the costs of new programs, we're going to have, have to have major growth and it's going to have to be led by the private sector and we're going to have to attract investment to Canada to, to, to do that. And that means then that the government is going to have to choose. Now, it, you know, it's dangerous if it confuses the amount of government spending with economic growth. Now, yeah. Economic spending presages debt uh, but it's the investment by the private sector which creates growth. And so we need to be looking at things like the regulatory structure in Canada. The government pulled back during the recession on a lot of the regulation that it was doing. And that was essential because they would have destroyed many businesses in Canada if on top of the other struggle they had to survive, they had a major regulatory burden added to them. 
But that means that behind the dam, there is a lot of pent up regulation waiting to waiting to be placed on business. That's a major concern. Um, the we hear people talking about well, we should be punishing those businesses that were successful during the during the recession, or we should be punishing individuals who who are wealthy. Uh, if you want to attract investment to Canada, or if you want to keep investment uh, that's generated here in Canada, then you have to ensure that that it's made feel welcome. Uh, as you know, Kirk, uh, uh, capital passes across borders like light through glass. It goes where it's wanted. Mm-hmm. If the message from our politicians is, we don't want you here. If you come here, you're going to be punished. Then it will go somewhere else. And the price that we'll pay for that is uh, is continued very low growth and uh, a, a debt burden that's going to be exceptionally difficult to bear. You, you and I have known each other for probably three decades now and uh, um, even longer, I think. And maybe maybe it's not a good idea. To, yes, you were you were twelve at the time. I I, yeah, I, I was. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. We were both we were both in grade school together. Um, it, uh, it, but but I wonder about um, how the pandemic has shifted um, the the relative priorities that Canadians place on some things, including um, whether they really do have a worry about. Uh, about the state of finances of the country, because there's no question that the Liberals, you know, helped get themselves elected, re-elected uh, by virtue of the way that, that Canadians received a lot of benefits during the pandemic, that they were really pretty well taken care of. And I wonder whether that has, has changed some attitudes in this country and whether uh, now, um, in a lot of ways, that that argument is almost lost with Canadians about fiscal responsibility. I think the average Canadian has a lot of common sense. Um, I think one of the problems has been that that they've been hearing many commentators arguing that somehow debt doesn't matter anymore, that it's not necessary to to balance the books. And the contrary argument hasn't been effectively made. But ordinary Canadians understand that you can't keep on going on spending more than you're bringing in indefinitely without having serious problems down the road. And it's no different. You know, people believe, uh, some of the experts and some of the politicians seem to believe that that government can repeal the laws of economics. It can't do that anymore than it can repeal the laws of gravity. Um, It's the same way for government as it is for running a small business or managing your own home. You keep on spending more money than you're bringing in there's a day of reckoning down the road. And ordinary Canadians understand that. Yes, they understood, as we did, that the, that the pandemic was an unprecedented crisis. And the government had to be there to support families and to support businesses to help them to get safely to the other side of the river. But they also recognize that, that if we are going to have any element of normalcy again, we've got to rebalance you have to have a private sector that is successful, that is investing, that's growing, and that's driving the economy. Uh, or what you'll find is uh, is that you slide into very serious economic problems. And, and the other thing that 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 animates ordinary Canadians, Kirk, is we we think about our kids and our grandkids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, however short short sighted we may be sometimes in terms of of looking at issues, when it comes to our own families. 
what we want to, to leave as our legacy is a future which is bright and where there's hope and there's opportunity. And part of the Canadian dream has always been that the next generation will be better off than this generation. Canadians know intuitively that if we simply saddle uh, our children with this massive mortgage, uh, that won't happen. Yeah. Um, I guess my, where the follow to that question or that long statement that I had was that you, you've also been, I think, an avid, um, you know, an, an avid supporter and I think uh, very, very intuitive around uh, Canadian media. Um, and when you look at what the business community has to communicate and what the media has to communicate, when you add it up, what are, what are the kind of common messages that um, might keep the country from steering itself toward a, um, a much more profoundly difficult economic period? I think the most important one is that we, we have to go back to first principles. We have to live within our means. We have to understand the difference between spending and investment. Um, Ottawa, the, the politicians in Ottawa have expunged the word spend from their lexicon. Uh, every dollar, every check that they write is an investment. Watch next time you, you hear a politician talking. Again, ordinary Canadians understand the difference between the two. And they understand that, that an investment brings a tangible return. And that particularly when we're looking at, at the economy, uh, putting money into such things as, um, as the Pacific Gateway, which can help us to, to be far more efficient in terms of moving our exports from Canada, is an investment mm -hmm. that brings a return to the Canadian economy. Spending on today's groceries uh, is not. Uh, it's gone when it's gone. And, and we have to make sure that, that we focus uh, on the areas where we can actually get a return. Um, both the media and certainly the business community have an obligation to, to portray the facts fairly and accurately and to respect the intelligence of, of Canadians to, to make the right decisions. Yeah. Last question, um, and I want to take us back to uh, something you mentioned earlier, which is that uh, the concentration of the Liberal vote um, and where it is now. And here in British Columbia, I think we could probably say now that we don't have um, and in the West, I think you could say, we don't have somebody who is a, a, a really prominent figure in the Liberal cabinet. We have nobody, I think, in the absolute inner circle of, of cabinet any longer. Um, you, you do have, though, for example, in Jonathan Wilkinson, uh, his yeah. position on the, on the environmental side. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, but, but natural resources to me is, is, is still, I, I feel like it's still a little outside that, you know, that foreign affairs um, defense uh, envelope that that uh, that and finance, of course, that that tend to define uh, the you know the upper echelon of cabinet. Um, I mean, Jonathan Wilkinson obviously is emerging as the most as the strongest of the Liberal uh, cabinet ministers out here, the, the the comer, if you want to put it that way. But um, Alberta is lacking that, um, and British Columbia uh, doesn't. You know, at least it's going to be some time before it requires that. What what happens when that happens? Well, my concern is if any region of the country starts to feel left out or victimized, then it tears the national fabric. So it's it's an issue that goes well beyond the economy to the nature of the country itself. 
uh, all Canadians have to feel that they're represented fully at the centre. And, and just going back to Mr. Wilkinson, you know, he's smart, he's energetic, he's well-respected. Uh, and one hopes that natural resources will be seen as, as a, an area of growing importance uh, in the new government, particularly because it's an area of, of competitive strength for Canada. It's something we do well, very well compared to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope he's able to, to make that case. But on your main point, there's no question that if you look at the, uh, at the most senior uh, portfolios in government, whether it's the prime minister himself, the minister of finance and deputy prime minister, uh, the I said the industry department, uh, uh, foreign affairs, uh, a range of others, those tend to be um, from the GTA or, or from Quebec that puts an extra burden on those ministers to make sure that that they are doing outreach, that they're listening to people in all parts of the country. Because you know, uh, even better than I do, because of having lived across the country, that one size doesn't fit all in this country, mm-hmm. that we are incredibly diverse, and uh, that that uh, the view, you know, once you've once you've drunk the water of the Rideau Canal, it doesn't give you an intelligence that no other Canadian has. Um, for us to be successful, uh, we actually have to have a partnership in Canada where everybody feels part of it. Yeah. Look, uh, always great talking to you. Uh, I get a lot from uh, from every discussion that we have, and I hope that people today have listened very well and, and uh, understood what you're saying. Um, you know, last point, I guess, uh, you know, you, you, you love this role. Uh, are, do you remain optimistic? At the end, yes. To be in business, you have to be optimistic. Uh, if you weren't, you would fold your tent and and uh, go somewhere else. When I look at the potential of this country, it's unprecedented anywhere in the world. You you know, ask yourself where people want to go. They want to come to Canada uh, because of all of the advantages that we have. The question is whether we're living up to that potential, hmm. and whether or not we have the vision. As a, as a country, the political leadership, the, the, the vision as a people, and the determination to do what we need to do to, to fully uh, realize that potential that we have as a country. Uh, I think we can do it, but it's going to be very important that all of us work together to, to achieve it. Yeah. Perrin Beatty, good talking to you. Stay well and safe. Perrin Beatty is the CEO and President of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor in chief of Business and Vancouver. Thanks a lot for watching.